My father-in-law was one who valued restoring wood furniture. He, he took a lot of old pieces of, of furniture and he made them look amazing. It, it didn't seem to matter how rough of shape the, the piece was in to start with. My father-in-law could make it look as if it was brand new before he, he was finished with it. For example, I, I have a small oak table that he gave us. I have a picture of it here that we can show you. He, he took this and made this table for us. He, he showed us that it was practically falling apart when, when he found it in a garage. It had been placed in this garage for many years. There had been a piece of an engine placed on it, and it was a big oil stain in the top, he told me. He said it was just completely torn apart. Obviously, it had been in the garage, he said, for a long time because the, the top had a lot of nicks and chips in it because people just tossed stuff on it. What drew him to the table, though, was, I think you can see on the screen there, there's a lot of detail on, on the, around the top and, and a lot of ornateness in the, the legs, the spindles and everything. And, and he loved that look. So he spent hours sanding out that oil stain on the top. He chipped wood off the bottom of the table top and glued it into the top so that he could make it smooth again. He used these tiny sanding tools, even some sanding string, to remove all the old stain that was on this wood and got into all the crevices on the top there and along the legs. And, and he sanded and he sanded until the, the wood was perfectly smooth. And then he applied the, the finish to, to make it look like it looks now. And we, we value this because our father-in-law valued this table. The, the reality is, is that he was willing to work hard for it because he valued it. And we, likewise, work hard for things we value. That's true of things, and it's also true of relationships. We work hard for what we value. As we continue working our series through the Song of Solomon this, this morning, I, I want to remind us that in this short book, the, the Song of Solomon, God gives us a guide to all the key areas of marriages, as marriage is the most intimate relationship that, that we will have apart from our relationship from God. In this book, God has shown us the, the joy that, that comes from this gift of marriage and romance. God has shown us the importance of purity as, as we live our lives before marriage develops. And before he has shown us how to maintain purity and how important that is as love develops. He's shown us the, the bliss of marriage that culminates in the intimacy of, of the wedding night. And then he's also shown us how in this sin-cursed world, marriage contains the pain of conflict. As you know by now, the, the song, as I'm referring to, to this book, is love poetry set to music. And because it's in the Word of God, it's not only for those who are married, it's not only for those who are looking marriage, it is to teach all of us about this institution. And, and God teaches us through this, this musical poetry, essentially a choral arrangement that, that's sung by voice to give voice to emotional ideas. We live as emotional creatures. We need to know how God expects us to handle our emotional elements of our lives. In this song, there are three voices. We have the beloved, this female soloist that sings the part of the young bride. We have the lover, the male solo who sings the part of the young man. And then we have a third musical voice that's a chorus of female friends 
that, that will join in from time to time. They, they had a third perspective. Last week, the beloved, our, our young bride, she sang of a conflict that had entered the marriage. She and her husband, they, they found themselves out of alignment when it came to their desires and their expectations of, of one another. And as they were out of sync, offense was taken and marital harmony was disrupted. Now, as we follow the text, as we worked our way through last week, we, we saw the, the beloved work through the emotions that, that were within her to arrive at the place where she yearned to reconcile with her husband. We ended last week with a confident statement in, in verse 3 of, of the song, chapter 6. She says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Our, our bride was secure that the foundation of, of their marriage was unshaken by the conflict because she recognized the foundation of their marriage was, was built upon a covenant commitment that they had made to one another. As we come to our text today, we, we should recall that, that the beloved, our, our wife here, she, she sang of, of looking for her husband to, to resolve the conflict, but she never sang last week of finding him. This morning now, the lover, the, the husband, takes over as the main voice. The, the words that he will sing today really are a beautiful love song in and of themselves, but we need to understand that they're placed into this choral arrangement at this spot. The young woman has been looking for her husband to reconcile, but now he steps in. This morning... As he steps in, these words, this song, this love song that we'll see within this arrangement becomes the words of reconciliation. This morning we find resolution to the conflict between our husband and wife. We're picking up right there in verse 4 of Song of Solomon chapter 6. As the lover now begins to sing to his beloved, and in these initial words that he sings... We learn that assurance of love produces reconciliation. Assurance of love produces reconciliation. Follow the, the husband's words beginning in verse 4. You are as beautiful as Tirza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have confused me. Your hair is like a flock of goats. They have descended, they have descended from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. There are sixty queens and eighty concubines and maidens without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who bore her. The maiden saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also. And they praised her, saying, Who is this that, that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? How many of you men have looked into the, wife of your, or the eyes of your wife, looked into her eyes and said, Honey, you are as beautiful as New York City, as lovely as Detroit. My, my guess is not too many. Yet that's essentially how the husband starts the verses here. 
He, he compares his bride, to, his bride to Terza in Jerusalem, two of the, the largest cities of his time. That, that's his way of telling her how important she is, how, how significant she is to him. Now, before we get hung up on the cities, look more closely at, at what the husband says as he begins to sing. In, in the context of the song, uh, make sure we understand these are the first words that he says to his wife after their conflict. Re remember, he was upset early in, in chapter 5. He was upset and he left the house. He's not spoken to his wife until now, or at least we've no record of him speaking. We're done to, to see these as the first words that he speaks after their fight. I, I mentioned that she was yearning to, to reconcile with him, but... But she had not found him as, as far as the song goes. Now it's apparent that they are together. And before the beloved can say anything, before she can sing a word, he jumps in. You are my, you are beautiful, my darling. My darling. Remember, that is his favorite term of endearment for her. Before she says a word, he reassures her that he remains completely devoted to her. He uses this special term of endearment. To him, she is as magnificent as these noble cities. She's as awesome as an army on parade. She is his closest companion. He goes on in the verses and he sings of her beauties. Many of the, the phrases there in, in verses 5 through 7, they, they may sound familiar to you. They're, they're essentially repeats of, of the song that he sang to her on the wedding night back in chapter 4. On that night, he, he sang of his love as they approached the, the consummation of their union. But now by, by echoing those words of that special night here, he's indicating that his love for her remains the same. The, the passage of time between that momentous first night together and, and now, that, that time has not dampened his love for her at all. More significantly, neither has the immediate conflict that arose. The, the fact that they had a fight doesn't change his love for her one bit. His love remains complete. She is still captivating to him. She is his darling. There is one notable difference between the, the words that we find here in chapter 6 and the words he sang in chapter 4. Now, he requests that she turn her eyes away. One thing he's learned in the intervening time is the power of her eyes. How much power her eyes hold over him. He, he cannot resist her eyes. When she looks at him, it sets his heart leaping. It muddles his thinking. He wants her to allow him a chance to, to fully express his love before she captivates him with her, her gaze once more. We don't know how much time there's been. There, there may have been a short time between the wedding night and this conflict, or there may have been a long time. We don't know, but we can recognize that most women will never feel as attractive, or they'll never feel as alluring to their husband as they do on their wedding night. That is a special night. In order to ensure that his bride still understands how desirous he finds her, our lover tells her that she is without equal. 
in his eyes. She is before all the women of the land as far as he's concerned. He, he says 60 queens. Well, queens are women who are likely considered the, 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 the benchmark of attractiveness. The most stately women of the, the land. 60 queens are not considered as attractive to him as she is. Likewise, the king's concubines, ladies that are typically selected because of their beauty, they're less than, than her in his eyes. Even the young maidens of the land, young women that are at the high point of their beauty, are less, as far as he's concerned, to her. Even the, the mention in verse 9 of, of her mother is probably a way of stating that he cares for her as intently as her mother did. She is the most precious woman in the world to him. So precious that the queens and the concubines, rather than, than being above her in stature, they would want to join him and sing praises of his devotion to her. As I said a few minutes ago, these verses are marvelous love song in and of themselves. What we need to mentally track is they singing these words of love for the purpose of reconciliation. Clearly these words play a large role in that process. We're to understand that, that reconciliation would come naturally to a woman who was assured so completely of her husband's love and commitment. That really is the point of these first verses. Assurance of love produces reconciliation. There certainly is a place for apologies. If we've wronged our spouse, we need to admit it. We need to set things right. For, for that matter, the same applies to any relationship we're in. We should always be, be quick to ask for forgiveness when it's required. There's also a place to discuss a situation that, that led to conflict. Problems may be real and they may need ex uh, discussing so that they can be addressed. What we can see from our verses is that none of those things must occur before reconciliation is possible. Simply assuring the other person that our commitment is, and love remains unchanged is sufficient to initiate the process of reconciliation. Uh, of course, we, we need to remember that reconciliation does take two people. Two people must come together. It's possible that one person will want to reconcile and the other will still refuse. Bitterness and anger can cloud a person's judgment. Hurt and, and emotional pain can get in the way. There, there are certainly exceptions in the sin-broken world to the ideal that we see here in the song. Still, we should never underestimate the, the power of assurances of love when it comes to producing reconciliation. In our marriages, it's important that, that we communicate our unwavering commitment to our spouse, especially after a fight. We, we need to assure our spouse that, that while we might experience and express frustrations, nothing that has happened has affected our love. Let's never forget, love is a choice. It is not an emotion. Love is a choice we make. Love is a commitment we make. We can decide that our circumstances will have no impact whatsoever on our choice. 
and we can communicate our choice, regardless of the circumstances of the moment. I mentioned last week that there have been several times over the past 33 years of marriage when Grace and I have had conflicts. I don't even think that came as a surprise to anyone, at least not anyone who was married is, is surprised by that. Yet, yet throughout the times of our conflicts, the, the assurance of our love for a, each other has allowed our commitment to one another not to waver. Instead, the, the assurance that, that the fight of the moment ha, has not affected our decision to love each other, that has helped greatly to produce a foundation that, that we could build on as we work towards reconciliation. It is hard to stay mad at someone who loves you. It's hard to stay mad at someone who assures you of their love even when you've been a jerk. Believe me, I know. It's easy to reconcile with someone who assures you of their love. Certainly, we need to assure our spouse of our love in our marriages. But let's not restrict this principle to marriage only. Our, our love for others is different than our love for our spouse. It's not the same kind of love, but the, the principle of, uh, of communicating our commitment to a relationship re remains the same. As we discussed last week, whether we're married or not, we will have conflicts with other people. We have relationships with lots of people, and those relationships will at times experience conflicts. Those conflicts require reconciliation. Assuring the other person that our commitment to the relationship is unchanged, that, that we're committed to the relationship, that, that goes a long ways toward producing reconciliation. Really, just telling others of our commitment is communicating our love. It's just a different level of love than we would have in a marriage. Assurance of love produces reconciliation. That's what we learn from verses 4 through 10 in, in the chapter here. Now, I mentioned at the outset of this series that there are a lot of interpretive challenges in this book. The images are often obscure. The, the connections between the sections are not always clear. Sometimes even who's singing is uncertain. The, the interpretive suggestions frequently are many. Rather than, than run through all the possibilities, I, I told you at the outset that for the most part, I'm just going to give you the option that, that I think makes the most sense of the material. Well, the next two verses are an example of challenging verses that have many suggestions as to who is singing and, and what the point the person is making. Now, I'll simply say I believe the man is continuing to sing, and I believe that he is celebrating the first of three things that come from reconciliation. Reconciliation comes about as assurance of love is given. Assurance of love produces reconciliation, but then reconciliation generates three things. First, reconciliation restores intimacy. Look at verse 11. I went down to the orchard of nut trees. I see the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vine had budded or the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. Lots of images in those verses. But if you recall, when we looked at chapter 4, one of the things I, I observed is the song is never vulgar. 
It, it handles the most delicate of topics, sexual intimacy between a, a husband and wife. It handles that with tasteful, poetic imagery. A few of those images reappear in these verses, a sufficient number to inform us that the husband has enjoyed his beloved's body once more, enjoyed her fully. You, you may recall that the little insight we were given of the conflict last week showed us, while we, we weren't given many details, the, we were given enough to show that the conflict occurred because the husband and wife were out of sync in their desires for one another. Well, these two verses show us that reconciliation has produced full intimacy once more. Rather than, than withholding their physical affection from one another, the wife has once again given herself fully to her husband, and he celebrates their, their time together. Reconciliation is incomplete until a relationship is restored back to the intimacy that existed before the conflict. Reconciliation does not simply sweep the conflict under the rug so that, that we move into some sort of a Cold War phase, agreeing simply not to talk about the problem again. That is not reconciliation. It's not reconciliation if affection and intimacy toward one another is not restored. Reconciliation doesn't sweep the conflict under the rug. Reconciliation sweeps it away so that it's no longer around to interfere with the relationship in any way. That's what these verses are showing us. Reconciliation restores intimacy. That is the first thing that comes from reconciliation. In the first half of verse 13, we see a second thing that comes from reconciliation. Reconciliation brings shared joy. Shared joy. Come back. Come back, O Shulamite. This verse has the only occurrences of the word Shulamite anywhere in the Old Testament. I can assure you that the suggestions to what that word means are numerous. Personally, I believe that, that the word probably is a, a female form of the, the name Solomon. There, there have been a few cases, I'm sure you know, that the lover has been called Solomon. When we encounter those earlier in the song, I explained that we do not have to take the fact that the lover is called Solomon as necessarily meaning he is King Solomon. Rather, this is poetry. And what's being described is that in the young woman's eyes, this man, her husband, or at the first time we saw it, it was her, her, her one she was courting, her boyfriend, the, the one that she became engaged to, in her eyes... He was as amazing as King Solomon. He clearly was presented as a shepherd at times, and King Solomon never had the occupation of a shepherd. But this is a poetic way of expressing that, that the man the, to the beloved is like a king. He is like Solomon in her eyes, in his grandeur, in his nobility, in his prominence. Well, I believe that the word Shulamite is serving a similar purpose. It's a feminine form of Solomon, the, the beloved. In the radiant joy that she exudes following the reconciliation from her husband, she is like a female Solomon. Her joy is immediately obvious to anyone who sees her. She has radiance and joy that, that compares to royalty. 
It's the chorus that's singing the, the first words of verse 13. These, these female friends of the beloved. Through, through the inner knowledge of the choral arrangement, they have witnessed the beloved's fight with her husband. And, and what I mean by inner knowledge, through the omniscience of poetry, the, the writer is able to give them any knowledge that he wants them to have. They don't have to be present to know things. He can, he can give them the knowledge so that he can use them to move the ideas along they seek to communicate. So through that inner knowledge of the choral arrangement, they know about the fight that she's had with her beloved. They have heard her inner yearning to reconcile with her husband. They're aware of now the lover's assurance of his love for her. They know that reconciliation has occurred and intimacy has been fully restored. They have this omniscient knowledge and they celebrate her joy with the joy of their own. This is the author's way of showing us that, that others will share in the joy when relationships are restored. They, they call on her to come back so that they can see her joy, the, the joy that's produced by reconciliation. The chorus, again, as frequently has served a poetic purpose in the song, it, it communicates things to move us along. Now it communicates the shared joy of friends when reconciliation occurs. As we observed at, at various points, we do not live in a bubble. We're not isolated. Our lives intersect with many other lives. That, that means our conflicts affect others. Inevitably. Not just the one we're in conflict with. It spirals out and affects others. The impacts radiate beyond the immediate person with whom we're in conflict to affect many other people. For example, an ongoing conflict between a husband and a wife certainly affects many. Children are immediately impacted if they're in the home. Extended family members, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, they, they can be drawn into the issues of the conflict. Friends can avoid feeling the, the strain and the pain either when there's tension between two people and they're friends with both. So in a similar fashion... Reconciliation affects a circle of people. All the people affected by the, the conflict now can share the joy that comes when a relationship is reconciled. An easy example of that is the joy that comes to a church. When someone who has been disciplined out of the church because of sin in their life is restored to fellowship once more. The, the, the conflict ultimately is between that person and God. But think of the joy that comes to all of us when we know that that reconciliation has been accomplished and that person is back among us. Reconciliation brings shared joy. That is the second thing produced by reconciliation. Thirdly, we can also recognize that reconciliation generates confidence. The last part of verse 13, we, we shift our singer as they have sung, come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze at you now. The third voice, a new voice, sings out, Why should you gaze at the Shulamite as you dance the dan at the dance of two companions? Why should you gaze at me? It's the, the beloved, the young bride, she sings once more. She echoes 
the, the words that they used, the name they gave her, Shulamite, she, the friends have assigned her that name. If they've requested that she come in front of them so that they can gaze on her, that, that request brings out some self-consciousness. She, she's not naturally seeking such attention. Why should I come before you? Still, she's willing to put herself there so that they can gaze on her joy. The, the words of the last line, the dance of the two companions, is the way we translate in the New American Standard. Though those words suggest a whirling kind of dance that, that's a, part of a joy-filled celebration. She's happy to allow her joy to serve as the center of attention at the moment. After all, her husband has chosen her above all others. He has assured her of his love. She has felt his love again. Her joy knows no boundaries. What, what we should recognize is, is that joy generates confidence. This young woman, I'm assuming she's still young, she is stand, willing to stand before her friends because she has confidence in her relationship with her husband. In a similar vein, reconciliation in our relationships generate confidence as well. Knowing that we stand secure with a, a person with, with whom we've had a conflict is confident producing. It, it cannot do anything less. Conflict generates doubts. It, it creates insecurity. Reconciliation generates confidence. Reconciliation generates confidence. Three things that, that result from reconciliation. That is in itself produced by the assurance of love. We have reconciliation restores intimacy. It brings shared joy and it generates confidence. Three things that come out. And if we put this all together, we can ask, what is the lesson for us in all this teaching today? Well, the lesson that we can take from our passage this morning is that efforts toward reconciliation display the value of relationships. Efforts show what we value. Efforts toward reconciliation display the value of relationships. I don't believe that anything that we've read in the last couple of weeks here in the song suggests that reconciliation is easy. Even though we've followed this flow through a conflict now to reconciliation, there's nothing that, that says that it's easy. Nothing from our lover today suggests that it was easy for him to forget the hurt and the pain that he experienced, the, the pain that, that drove him from the house. What we've seen is that despite the hurt and pain, he remembered the relationship that he has with his wife. He remembers the, the depth of his love for her. He, he remembered that, that she is his closest companion. He remembered that he's committed to her through covenant. Frankly, he remembered how important she was. He remembered the value of his relationship with her. That is the reason that he's willing to make the effort required for reconciliation, not because it's easy, because it's valuable. Last week, the, the beloved, in a similar manner, she went through the process of, of remembering the value of her relationship with the husband, and the result was we saw that she yearned for reconciliation. Not because it was easy. She couldn't even find him at the moment. But she made the effort to find him because 
of the value of the relationship. The, the point I'm making is that if we wonder what the value of re relationship is, all we have to do is look at the level of effort we're willing to put forth when conflict arises. When conflict requires reconciliation, what are we willing to put forth? That shows the value. That's true in our marriages. It's true in our church. Both our marriage and our church membership are examples of covenant commitment. We made a covenant together. I'm sure that marriages and church membership are both places where we can experience conflict as well. What do our efforts toward reconciliation show about the degree to which we value these relationships? Now let's consider another relationship. One where reconciliation has occurred. Our relationship with God. Assuming we're saved, let's consider our relationship with God. We were fully estranged from God. Our sin had separated us. The, the conflict between us and God had created an, an infinite barrier. Sin had created this infinite barrier in, in size. That we could do nothing to reconcile with God because the Bible teaches us we did not want to reconcile with God. All we wanted to do was go to war with God. We were content living our own lives, being our own demigods, and when he stepped in the way, we just wanted to go to war with him. We would never initiate reconciliation. We only loved ourselves. That is how estranged we were from God. God, however, the Bible tells us, loved us. He so loved us that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son to die for us. What an effort toward reconciliation. His son, Jesus, had to die to provide a just foundation upon which reconciliation could be built. What effort! God wasn't done putting forth effort, though. Even, even as Christ died on the cross and rose again, God allowed him to ascend to heaven, and he sit, sat him on the right hand in the place of authority. God was not done putting forth effort in our reconciliation. Jesus' death was only part of his effort. God so worked that we would personally hear of what Jesus has done. God worked through his spirit to, to draw us to himself. He caused us to understand that we needed to accept Jesus as Savior. We needed to ex accept that sacrifice. God did all the work, all the while assuring us of his love for us through his work. Think of all the effort that God put forth toward our reconciliation with him. By the way, as I think everyone that's here knows, if you have not accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, you are not reconciled to God. You can be. I look around, there's nobody here who's not heard the gospel message before. You can be. You can be reconciled, but until you accept Christ as Savior, you will not be. So allow me this morning to use the words of Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.20, be reconciled to God. Accept Jesus as your Savior. Quit waiting. 
all we need to think about is the effort that God put forth in our reconciliation to see how valuable that relationship is. The reconciliation restored our intimacy with God. Intimacy that was completely ruptured by sin. That reconciliation restores our intimacy with God and it brings shared joy. God finds joy in our reconciliation and so do we. And we find joy in the reconciliation of others with God. As we hear others come to saving faith in Christ, we all celebrate and rejoice, sharing the joy. And it brings confidence. We know that nothing will separate us from the love of God because our standing with God is in the righteousness of Christ. We also know the work of God sets the standard for the level of effort that we are to put forth reconciling with others. We're called to value others the way God values them. We are to forgive as God forgives us in Christ. We are to value our relationship with others the way God values his relationship with them. So let me repeat the question I asked a couple minutes ago. What do our efforts toward reconciliation show about the degree to which we value our relationships? How do we measure up against the standard God has given us to measure by? Efforts toward reconciliation display the value of relationships. The, the oak table that I showed you at the beginning of the sermon, that, that's an example of, of something my father-in-law valued enough to, to work really hard at restoring. This morning we've seen the husband and wife in, in the Song of Solomon value their marriage enough to work hard on reconciling with one another when conflict arose. We've considered how well God valued us. They valued us so much they sacrificed his son to reconcile with us. There's no doubt that we should put forth the, the efforts required to reconcile with others. Failure to do that demonstrates that we fail to value relationships as we ought. Efforts toward reconciliation display the value of relationships. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this challenge this morning. Now I pray that you would help all of us to examine ourselves, to think through the relationships that you've given us, to see where reconciliation is needed, and to examine the effort that we put forth. Are we valuing the relationships the way that we ought? Father, show us where we are failing to to value as we should. And Father, may we be men and women who put forth the, the effort to reconcile with others to show the value that you would have us place on the relationships you have given us so that we can joyfully magnify our Savior, Jesus Christ, before a world who does not know the value that you place on them, before a world that needs to know how you value them in Christ. Father, we know that our reconciliation with others is to be an illustration of your willingness to reconcile through Christ with others. May we magnify Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.